Blog Talk Radio.
welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in. This is T Love, your host here at Energy Awareness Radio. I am a certified sound and reconnective healing therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where we are streaming to you live as we do every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our chat room is open, so feel free to join the discussion that's already happening online. And we do keep an eye on the chat room, so if you have a question, post it, and we'll we'll do our best to get your question on air. There have been some technical difficulties lately. I apologize for that, but we will do our best to get your question on air. As an alternative, for those of you who are on the go and you can't continue to listen online, please call us directly by dialing 347 Two zero two zero two two seven, and that way you can listen via phone or please be sure to use your Bluetooth if you are driving about. You know, the one thing we all know for sure about life is that we all, each and every one of us, will one day leave this earth. We will die. There is no getting around that. And however, there are some who have had a glimpse of what's on the other side and have come back to talk about it. Those people have experienced near-death experiences, and tonight we're going to be discussing this topic with my guest, Dr. Penny Satori. Dr. Satori is an expert in near-death experiences, and she undertook the UK's first long-term perspective study. She is the author of The Near-Death Experiences of Hospitalized Intensive Care Patients, a five-year clinical study, as well as the book we will be discussing tonight, The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences, how understanding NDEs can help us live more fully. Currently, Penny teaches two courses at Swansea University that she developed, Death and Dying as Spiritual Transformation and Science, Spirituality, and Health. And she lectures both nationally and internationally. And we are so fortunate that she is calling in from England tonight, so it's very late over there. And I'm grateful that she is on the line with us. Good evening, Penny. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you being this evening? Good evening. I'm good, thanks. Thank you for inviting uh, me. Uh. Oh, well, you know, your book is really fascinating. I don't think there's there's been enough about this, and it is a topic that remains a hot topic around water coolers everywhere. People are interested in this, especially with some movies that are currently out that are seem to be promoting uh, you know, people who have gone to heaven and come back. In the introduction, you bring up some of the questions that I don't think a whole lot of people really think about until now, but I believe they're well worth asking. You know, what is death? Why are we so afraid of it? Why don't we ever talk about it? People are afraid of death and dying, and yet some of those who have experienced NDEs, near-death experiences, Give us reason to not fear that unknown journey that each and every one of us will undeniably be taking at some point. You've had the distinction of researching this subject and speaking with those who have had NDEs, and some of those stories are in your book, The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences. So just so that everybody knows how this all came about, would you mind starting by telling our listeners how you came into this field of research? Yeah, well, it was because of my job, really. I worked as a nurse for 21 years, and I worked in intensive care for 17 of those years. And when I first started working in intensive care, I realized how frequent death was, and I realized that it was happening to people of all ages, not just elderly people, it was happening to the young people as well. And it was on one particular night shift when I was looking after a man who was clearly dying, that we made a connection and that changed everything for me. I was just about to undertake some routine 
nursing care. And as I adjusted the height of the bed, the man nearly jumped out of bed in agony. And our eyes connected, and I felt almost as if I'd swapped places with him. And I suddenly seemed to understand what he was going through. And he was mouthing the words to me. He couldn't speak because he had a tracheostomy. But he was saying, leave me alone. Let me die. Let me die in peace. And that had a really big impact on me. And for the rest of that night shift, I couldn't stop thinking about what he was going through. And after that, you know, the following day, I couldn't sleep. It upset me. And so I phoned up work mid-morning, and they said that the patient had died. And that really set me on a path of investigating death and what is it. And so I looked for some nursing courses to help me to care for dying patients in a critical care area. But there was nothing suitable. It was all kind of palliative care. And so I started reading about death, and I came across near-death experiences. And I thought, wow, now these people are telling us that death is a lovely experience. It's nothing to be afraid of. But I think because my my nurse training was very scientific, it made me quite sceptical of these experiences as well. And I had my own preconceptions, and I didn't really have any in-depth knowledge of them. But I think the more I started reading about near-death experiences, the more curious I became. And I thought, well, I'm working in the ideal environment where I can research these further and explore them in greater depth. And so that's what I did. And so um, in 1997, I began the UK's first long-term project. And I gathered data for five years where I interviewed the patients in my care. And then it took me three years then to write up and analyse all of the, the data that I'd gathered. And so that's how is my there, research came there, about. That, you know, and that's incredible for one woman to take all of this on because I am not aware that there is anyone else who has researched this in the same manner. I think there's a lot of books out there about people who have written, you know, stories about people who have had near-death experiences and whatnot, but I don't know that anybody has really undertaken the task of researching it in the same way that you did. Are you aware of any of that? Yeah, there are a few other studies that have been done by other groups of people. Um, there was some. There was a really interesting research uh, project that was undertaken in Holland, in the Netherlands, by Dr. Pim van Lommel and his team, and they were actually made uh, quite a breakthrough because the results of that study was actually published in the Lancet Journal, which is quite a prestigious medical journal. So that was quite a breakthrough to have that sort of published there. There was also Dr. Sam Parnia, who did a smaller study in the UK, and there's been Professor Bruce Grayson in the United States, and also Janet Swaninger and her colleagues, who also undertook some research in America as well. So there's quite, there are some studies then, but I think we need to build on these studies now and, and replicate them as well. I think so too, because I don't think it's really out there publicly that these studies are being done so the general public can have a better understanding. And that may be why when some of these books that are published, the children who have passed and come back and say, you know, oh, I went and saw heaven, uh, that the uh, Hollywood is taking it and making it into movies. And that is probably what's going to be the push to get this more into the forefront. Do you know what I mean? that's right. 
Yes, it is. It, and it's really good that such awareness is now being raised in the media as well, because I think, you know, the more that we see it in the movies, the more perhaps people will have an enhanced understanding of what these experiences are. Because I think a lot of people kind of take these experiences just at the surface value and just say, think you know oh these are just hallucinations this is just your brain shutting down which were some of my preconceived ideas before undertaking the research but I think now having had the benefit of undertaking that research I found that those preconceived ideas were not supported by the findings of what I found with my research so I think it really is important to raise awareness with the general public that these experiences are far more complex than we really understand them to be. Yes, I don't know that we'll ever really get to know them as fully as we'd like to, but I think at least we're on our way. And I believe that hopefully at some point it will become more part of mainstream so that it's taught in the uh, medical academic arena and, and there will be students who can take courses on this, such as yes, the ones that you've developed. Yes, now mm -hmm. this is what I would really love to do because I think um, medical people and nurses and doctors, they are there at the forefront when people are having these experiences. And if you think about how our technology is evolving and how advanced it's becoming, it's showing that more and more people are now surviving critical illness and being revived from cardiac arrest and things like this. And so it's likely that there's more and more people who are going to be experiencing a near-death experience. And so I think it's vital that these experiences are in the education of all healthcare workers so that people can identify when an experience has happened and that they can support the patients through their experience as well. Because in many cases, it takes years and years to understand the experience fully and to fully integrate it into their life. You know, it's such a highly complex phenomenon. There's lots of after effects with these near-death experiences and it can really impair the way that people live their life until they fully understand it. So I think it's important that people really do get support once they've had one of these experiences. And that's what we're trying to do in the UK now. Um, recently, I've been contacted by so many people as a result of my book being published, and they've all described mm. their experiences, and it's highlighted the lack of support that there is for people. So um, I'm currently working with a few people who've had these experiences who are trying to set up support groups in the, the UK. There are some support groups in the USA already, but I think in the UK we're falling behind on that, so I think it's something that we need to catch up with. Oh, that's funny because you don't hear that much about it here at all. I did not realize that there were support groups in the US, so I would have thought that the UK was ahead, and, and we should be looking to you for, you know, you know don't let's reinvent the wheel. <laughs> let's follow what they're doing. Uh, I think the other thing is that so many doctors and nurses are taught, and, and rightfully so to a degree, to be detached from their patients. They have to be. They can't take it all home. But I think if they start to really study this and learn it, they will become more compassionate and caring and less detached, they can still be detached, but less detached in a way that they won't necessarily take everything home and, and let it integrate with their own lives, but they will be more inclined to help the people in a, in a much more compassionate way. Would you agree with that? 
Yes, it's interesting that you say that because, yes, I agree with that because that's one of the effects that it had on myself, really, and my own practice. Mm-hmm. It did, it kind of like gave me that extra compassion as well. It was like a deeper understanding, but it also gave me a different perspective in that I, I wasn't so attached to uh, the outcome of what was going on as well. Whereas I think during my nurse training, it was easy to get very upset when patients died and things like that. But I think having done my research, it gave me more of an insight and it helped me to cope better as well. And as a result, I stayed working in intensive care for 17 years because I just, had, I just felt that I had a different perspective on death, completely to, different to what it was before. And, and I think when you first start out in, in the medical arena and you're, you know, a student nurse or a resident, I think death hits you harder because you're new to it and, and you're not yet, uh, the word is not accustomed, but you're not yet so ingrained that, yes, people are going to die and you have to detach, that you're still somewhat in shock and, and thinking, wow, this is very sad and it's horrible. So you're going to have those feelings to start with. It was probably very lucky that that they had you because you probably had more compassion and didn't go the full detachment route, and that's why you were able to do all this. Yeah, I guess so. I was able to maintain that balance, really. So, yes, I was able to maintain that compassion and, and not get too upset either at the same time. So, yeah, I think I, it, my research certainly enabled me to have that balance, definitely, yes. And I think, yeah, you know, when you yeah. start starting to learn about death you know it gives you a completely different perspective on life as well so it it was something that really did open my eyes and um, something I'll always be very grateful for as well. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. You know, and you also mentioned after effects. I know in your book there was one gentleman who had a near-death experience, and after the fact, his hand, I hope I get this right, I'm not mixing up stories, um, the, his hand, which was paralyzed since birth, I believe, was no longer paralyzed. Yes, that's correct. Now, this is a case that I came across during my hospital study, and I happened to be looking after this patient on this particular day, and he was making a good recovery. He'd been in intensive care for about two weeks or maybe a bit longer, and um, we decided we'd sit him in the chair. He was still ventilated, and he had a tracheostomy, but it helps with your muscle tone and your, bre- your posture for breathing if the, the patients sit out when, as, as soon as possible. And so we'd sat him in the chair, and his condition started to deteriorate quite rapidly. And then he, um, his blood pressure dropped, and then he became grey and clammy, and all of these were signs of an ensuing cardiac arrest. So I thought that if we didn't get this man back into bed quite quickly, he could have a cardiac arrest in the chair. So I gathered my colleagues and we put him back into bed very quickly. By this time, he was deeply unconscious. He wasn't responding to deep, painful stimuli. He wasn't responding to us calling his name or shaking him. So the doctor came and examined him and we gave him some fluid for his blood pressure, which resolved. And the doctor had to go back to another emergency. So although the patient stabilized temporarily, his condition started to deteriorate again. So I, I called for the, um, the, the doctor, but he wasn't available. So I went off to find another doctor, and the consultant happened to be walking into the unit that day. So I quickly called him to review my patient, and 
we treated him and then his condition stabilized. And during the time that that consultant was examining the patient, he actually shone a pupil torch into his eyes. And um, and then once his condition had um, stabilized, he went back to his office and he wasn't back onto the, on the unit floor and, until about a further two and a half hours later. Now, after about half an hour, this patient began to move his limbs and flicker his eyelids. And these are signs of regaining neurological function. So I was happy that he was stabilizing and he was regaining consciousness. And then about three hours later, as the, the doctors were approaching the bed area to review his case, this man started to become quite animated. He, he was very excitedly trying to tell the doctor something. So the, the physio got a letter board and he spelled, I died and I watched it all from above. And so the doctor said, oh, you'd better tell Penny about that. And then I interviewed him immediately afterwards, and he described having an out-of-body experience during that time when he was deeply unconscious. And he said he'd left his body, and he was looking down from above, and he very accurately described which doctor had examined him and looked in his eyes. He described the nurse cleaning his mouth with something long and pink, and this was correct. I cleaned his mouth with a pink sponge. And also he described seeing the physiotherapist looking quite nervous and poking her head around the, around the curtains. Now, these things all did happen, but at the time he was deeply unconscious. And then further to that, he said that he also went into what he described as being a pink room where he met his dead father and a Jesus-type figure. And he said it was lovely. It was such a wonderful feeling. He really wanted to stay there. But the Jesus-type figure said, no, it's not your time. You have to go back. And when he said that, it's as if the image of everything faded in front of him and he found himself back in his body in immediate pain. Now, when I did a follow-up interview, this man misinterpreted one of my questions. And I said, when you're out, you're out of your body, is there anything that you could do that you can't normally do? Now, what I was getting at is that some people can think of a location say the pyramids of Egypt, and they'll instantaneously find themselves there. So he misinterpreted that, and he held up his hand, and he said, no, look, I can open out my hand. Now, his right hand has usually been in a permanently contracted position. This man has cerebral palsy. So for 60 years of his life, his hand had been contracted, and all of a sudden, after his near-death experience, he can now open it out fully. Now, that's something that there's no physiological explanation for. I asked the doctors mm. if they could explain it. I asked the physiotherapist if they could explain it. And no, and no one can understand how this has happened. So that is something that is really quite incredible, really. But I think that if we understood something like that, think of how many other patients could benefit from this, you know, because um, the doctor said that the only way that this could happen is if the patient had an operation to release the tendons because the tendons would be in a permanently contracted position. But no such operation was performed. So, you know, patients could have, heal, if we understood this mechanism, it could potentially heal other patients without having invasive surgery. So there's lots of benefits that if we understood these experiences in more depth, that we could perhaps benefit future patients as well. Well, it's interesting that you should say that because 
some of the, uh, the way that people go through the near-death experience, uh, the light and the tunnel and going to a garden and all of that, is similar to when someone gives you a past life regression. And Dr. Brian Weiss, who's the foremost authority on past life regressions, he's been on our show, and he tells us that, you know, he's had people go through a past life regression and come back and be healed from whatever it was that was ailing them in this life that they're living. So it's interesting to me that this gentleman had a near-death experience and then came back and was able to open his hand. There it kind of proves to me that there must be a mechanism that we can access in the brain that allows us to go beyond our current scope of the physical plane and we can actually heal ourselves. I, I believe that anyway, that we heal ourselves simply because we've gone through that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do yeah, you think? Right. <laughs> well, I think what these kind of experiences do is, is perhaps shed a little bit more light on consciousness, you know, and I think... Mm-hmm. The reason that we can't explain these experiences is because we're looking at our preconceptions of what consciousness is, is perhaps wrong. You know, our current science believes consciousness to be created by the brain. And um, once the brain stops functioning, that's it. There's, there should be no conscious experience at all. But then when you look at these hospital studies that have been undertaken and people who have had a cardiac arrest have you know these heightened states of awareness and heightened consciousness that shouldn't physiologically be possible because during a cardiac arrest the brain is flatlined the brain is not functioning optimally it's not functioning functioning at all so how can people have a heightened sense of consciousness and sometimes gain access to information that they didn't previously have so i think what these experiences are perhaps showing us is that we have to think about consciousness from a different perspective. And for me, having done the research that I've done, it would make more sense to perhaps explore consciousness as being primary, and that consciousness is always around us, it's eternal, and our brain sometimes acts, our brain in effect acts like a filter. And there are certain times in one's life when that filter action of the brain becomes dysfunctional, as it would do as you approach death or during a cardiac arrest. And because that filter action is dysfunctional, it's allowing this consciousness into our everyday experience. And I think that gives us a greater understanding of consciousness. And then I think if we explore other aspects of near-death experiences in th- with this, from this perspective, we could get more answers, really. So I think we have to be open-minded and think more about what consciousness is. I think so, too. I, I'm of the school of thought that consciousness is a very spiritual thing, and I love seeing that science and spirituality is, is marrying and coupling together to figure these types of things out. Because for me, and this is just my belief, uh, the body that I walk around in is quite simply my mobile home. I am within it driving it, and you can do whatever you want to the mobile home, but you can't touch me, my consciousness. That continues to live on once my physical body expires. And one of the things that kind of validated that more for me in reading your book is when I read about here I live in the Western world, and I am under the impression that all NDs start with going to the light, through the tunnel, being greeted by past loved ones. However... It really is more of a cultural thing. It's not that way across the globe. There are cultural differences, correct? 
Yes, there are, yes. And there are very many different um, cultural differences. So, for example, in India, some people, rather than meet relatives or dead relatives or friends, they may meet uh, Yamadutes, who are messengers of Yama, the god of the dead. Or they may meet um, a man called Chitragupta, the man with the book. And this, this book that Chitragupta has is a book of deeds of the light of the life of the person so he looks at their deeds whether they've done good things or bad things and that kind of decides their fate from there on and so it is very much culturally influenced so um, there's all different perceptions really according to our individual makeup but also our cultural makeup as well yeah, that kind of did it for me. It kind of it kind of validated for myself that it is a spiritual thing because your belief comes into it, and your belief would, in, of course, have a huge effect and impact on how you come and go, you know, into this life you're coming in and, and into a culture and you're going out in that same culture. So it kind of made sense to me. The, uh, the other thing I found very interesting is when you were speaking a few moments ago and you said, uh, the gentleman told the doctor, you know, I went to heaven. And he said, oh, you need to talk to Penny about that. It had to have been a little difficult to get the hospital and everyone to get on board with you wanting to do this study, was it not? Um, yeah, I think in the beginning when I started talking about the research, people were really quite skeptical and they were kind of... Mm. Um, oh, this is like X-Files type of thing. But then when I explained the reasons for me doing the research and what I was hoping to find out, they understood really that it was hope that it would benefit patient care in the long term when I got the results of it. So although there was initial scepticism, they were willing to go along with it. And um, as I progressed with my research, they became very, very curious. And I was lucky they were very supportive of my work. And um, they did take a lot of notice and they did take it on board as well. And so I think what it did was really raise the awareness of these experiences and the importance of them. And as a result, when patients did um, report these experiences, the doctors then will respond and say, right, okay, well, you've had something called a near-death experience, and they would pass the cases on to me. So they wouldn't kind of dismiss them as they had done previously. Because previously, I, my colleagues of mine who'd worked there for many years used to say that, oh, yeah, if a patient had reported anything like that, it was just they were told that it was due to the drugs and things like that. But actually, mm -hmm. with my research, I found that the drugs, if anything, inhibit an experience like this and certainly don't create them. And so I think the doctors were far more open-minded and far more informed as a result of having done the research there. You certainly opened a lot of doors. I work a lot with um, hospice cases, and, you know, that's, that's difficult. And sometimes you'll be in a room and the, the patient will, I've heard things like, why are there people in the corner in costume? Or who are those people over there? Why are they wearing funny clothes? And, you know, I would say, you know, oh, okay, you know, they're, this person is, is seeing people on the other side. And at first when I said that, I would get looked at like I was crazy. And now I understand and I see that the, the nurses and the doctors in the hospital, they're beginning to understand that too. They, they know that death is near when that happens, that within a few days this person is definitely going to pass. And I find it very interesting that it's being more and more accepted. And I think it's great. I think it's wonderful that it is because it does make people realize 
you know, that there is more to life than just what is here. So I think you've opened a lot of doors, and, you know, and other people have as well, and I think that's a really terrific thing. So kudos to you for all the work that you did for the rest of us to make it easier. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, now, you know, I, I remember my, my – sorry. Go, no, go ahead. I, I remember my very first day on the ward as a student nurse, and uh, I was sitting in the office, and the night nurse was handing over from the night what had gone on, and she said, oh, the man in bed six, he'll be dead by the end of the morning. He's been talking to his dead mother since 3 a.m. And I looked around, and I thought, are they saying this now to kind of spook me and to wind me up because it's my first day? <laughs> and I, I looked around, and everyone carried on as if it was quite normal. So I think from an early stage, I realized that these kind of things were were viewed or com- commonly witnessed by nurses, but they just didn't really talk about them a great deal outside of the clinical area, really, you know. So I think it's something yeah. that people do recognize, and now they're, they're beginning to talk about it a lot more. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and, the, uh, and I think that that helps the families, too, because the patients will have lucid moments where they can actually speak to the families and, and do their goodbyes, if you will, but the families also see the signs and they know and they can be better prepared. So I think it's better for everybody if we're all on the same page, you know? Uh-huh. Yes, that's right, yes. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, um, you know, in my research as well, we, we saw patients who were communicating with people that we couldn't see. And uh, the families, the the patient actually told the family about this the following day. And um, that gave the family a great deal of comfort, knowing that their loved one was dying, that they'd already seen relatives, dead relatives, during the night. And, you know, it really did help the family to come to terms with the impending death. So it is of comfort to relatives as well as the patient themselves. And you had one patient, I believe it was patient number 11, because you number your your patients, that during his NDE, he communicated with a deceased relative who asked him to relay a message to a living relative. Now, to me, I didn't find this to be that unusual, because I believe in mediums. I know people who are psychics and mediums, and I've seen them do their work, and they're excellent at what they do. I've been over to England and seen people over there. You've got the Arthur Finlay Institute that, that helps to train people in mediumship, it is definitely becoming a science that is being accepted as part of conventional science rather than just the metaphysical woo-woo stuff that it always was before. But it speaks to me to accessing those parts of the brain that until recently were considered just gray matter. You know, but it's been proven via EEGs, at least in this country. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Oz. He's a, um, a well-known cardiologist in the United States. And he has hooked up mediums to EEGs, and then when they go into that mode where they're channeling people from the other side and they're giving readings, different parts of the brain actually do activate. They light up, and that doesn't happen with normal people. So they're beginning to see that there is something that lights up and and starts to work in that way. I'm wondering if during an NDE, they, like a medium, are accessing that part of the brain as any as well. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, during a cardiac arrest, there shouldn't really be any brain function at all. The, the cortex of the brain, which produces the consciousness, um, sh- isn't really working during a, a cardiac arrest. And um, but it. We don't have data to the very deep, deep structures of the brain, really. 
So I think possibly there may be correlations of deep structures in the brain where these experiences are mediated. But I don't think they should be confused with causations as causing the experience, but it's just the part of the brain which is correlated with experience in this experience. So, um, yeah, it, it could very well be something like that. And I think what these people are accessing is maybe they're accessing what Carl Jung called the archetypal realm and the collective unconscious. And so that's the yep. deep yep. consciousness which is around us perhaps all the time, but we're not aware of it during our normal waking consciousness. Some people are maybe, right. you know, if they're mediums and things, yeah. Yes, they, they are somehow they can access information that you just can't make this stuff up. And the person that they're giving the reading to is saying, yes, that's exactly what my loved one said or did. Or if they say, well, they saw you in a room yesterday, you were looking at pictures. And they're like, yeah, I was looking at pictures yesterday. Well, they're with you. So I believe in that. And I just think, wow, it's really interesting that somehow all of this, I'm quite sure, ties together because I believe there is a consciousness that we all have that we can access here in the physical plane to live our lives as human beings but there's also the consciousness that maybe only some people can access that goes beyond this realm and you know and when you're passing over or you're having that near-death experience you could be accessing that like a medium would as well even though it isn't showing up necessarily on an EEG so like you said it might be deep-seated in the brain uh-huh, yes yeah and, and there's a really fascinating lady I came across last year I went to a conference in Marseille, and this lady had a near-death experience where she kind of uh, went back to a review of her whole life. She went back to the time of her birth even, but then she went back to the birth of the universe, and she believed that she existed at a, a really tiny, tiny infinitesimal level. And she felt that she understood everything from a quantum perspective. And when she revived, she suddenly had this access to knowledge about quantum physics that she'd never previously had before she'd never been trained in physics at all she just had a basic education but because of her near-death experience she was then motivated to go to university to study quantum physics and the interesting thing about this conference is that they'd actually interviewed a university professor and he said he was puzzled as to how she could have acquired such deep-seated knowledge about quantum physics. He said it's not something that you can acquire through reading lots of books or through doing a booster course. This is really deep-seated knowledge that she has and some of the things that she's written about in her work is beyond his level of understanding and he said but since She's written these papers. Other papers have been published in physics journals, which are supporting what she's saying. And so that, to me, is fascinating how she could have this understanding of quantum physics that she didn't have prior to her near-death experience. Just goes to show you that our brain is really a super organic computer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> they don't build, Dell and IBM cannot make the computer like the one that we all walk around with in our cranium, <laughs> you know? Mm, yes, that's it. <laughs> absolutely true. You also learned that not all NDEs are necessarily pleasant. There are some that seem to run the gamut from being very pleasant and beautiful and wonderful to not just as stressful, but actually it can be horrific or even hell-like. What determined was the basis for those? 
Yeah. Now, these experiences, they're much harder to research because a lot of people don't want to talk about these experiences. Sometimes there's a lot of stigma involved with them and people think, well, that person's had a pleasant experience. I've lived a good life. Why did I have this horrible, unpleasant, hellish experience? And so I kind of looked into these as well. And Nancy Evans Bush has done a lot of work in the distressing kind of experiences because she's had one herself. And there's there's no kind of like um, understanding as to why some people do have these experiences and others have a pleasant experience. Now, in my research, I came across two of the distressing kinds. The first one was the usual kind of near-death experience, but it was interpreted in quite a frightening and distressing way. The lady had um, a respiratory arrest at home, and she said that she was looking down on her body from above she didn't recognize the room that she was in. And then all of a sudden she said she was floating towards this river or big river that had a large bridge going over it. And she said she's terrified of water. And the closer she got to this bridge and the river, the more frightened she was becoming and she was panicking inside. And then she said that she could hear these voices in the background and it was as if there were children mocking her. And she said it was something that really did it frighten her and it got quite intense for her. And then as she got close to this bridge, she just woke up all of a sudden and she found herself back in the, in the intensive care unit by that time. And she said there was nothing pleasant about it, but she was convinced that she was dead at that point. She was absolutely convinced. And she said it's something she'd never want to go through again. It was a horrible experience. And then the second kind I got was of the hellish type of experience. Now, this was a lady who had a cardiac arrest, and um, she said all of a sudden it all went black, and she could then see, again, she could see a large expanse of water, like a river or a stream. And in the middle of this river or stream, there was a lady sitting in a rowing boat. She had a hat on her head, and she said she didn't recognize this lady, but she knew she had to get away from her. And um, she started to get quite distressed. And then all of a sudden, it was as if there were fireworks going off around her, like a big Catherine wheel with all vividly coloured um, colours. And then she said, then she started to start to feel distressed. And she said, and that's when I felt the heat. And she said, and then the flames. And she said, I was looking into hell. I could feel the flames of hell. And as she started to describe this, she really became very, very distressed. She started crying, almost to the point of hysteria, and she couldn't speak anymore. She was so upset, so I had to terminate the interview. So I tried to reassure her that there are some cases like this that have been documented in the literature, but as they develop, they turn into something that's much more pleasant. But... I went back to visit this lady about two days later, and she was so distressed by that experience, she didn't want to talk about it again. So I never actually got to find out what sort of the experience progressed to. But it, obviously it was something that really did cause her a lot of distress and discomfort. And, you know, I was thinking when I was a student nurse, I was looking after a lady, and she was dying, and she had the most really unpleasant death. And I can remember... Every time we walked past her bed, she would try and grab onto us and she would dig her nails into our flesh and her eyes were really had this terrified look and she was saying to me, please don't let me die. I died before and it's horrible. 
Now, at the time, I'd never even heard of near-death experiences, and we didn't know how best to treat this lady. And I can remember we were chatting with the family, and the family said, well, she'd had a cardiac arrest about five years previously, but they didn't know why she was so distressed. Now, having had the benefit of undertaking this research, it seems on reflection that this lady may have had one of these hellish type of experiences when she'd had her cardiac arrest. And consequently, that was making her terrified of dying now. And so I think if we have a greater understanding of these experiences, people like that, we can support them a lot more during their dying process. So I think it's, it's, it's something that we don't understand why some people have pleasant and one, why some people have unpleasant. But there are schools of thought to say that perhaps when <clears throat> it's like almost like... Um, Failure to relinquish the ego. It's people who are used to being in control and they're fighting the experience and they're clinging on to life. But once they relinquish the, the ego and kind of relax into the experience, it tends to turn into something that's a pleasant experience as well. I hope so because these people, it, there is such a drastic difference. The people who have had the hellish experience are petrified to die, whereas the people, some of the people that you wrote about in your book, they no longer are scared to die because they had a pleasant experience, and some were even looking forward to it in a way like, oh, okay, I'm just living my life because I know it's going to be better on the other side. It's, it's quite a contrast. Yes, it is. You're right. There is a contrast there. And um, there was also another researcher, Dr. Barbara Roma, who is a cardiologist in America. And um, she wrote a book called Blessings in Disguise. And she found that some of the people who she spoke to who had the distressing experiences, although it was an unpleasant experience at the time, it did have um, long-term benefit in that the people, it acted like a wake-up call for the people. And they said, right, well, I was living my life in this way. And it prompted them to change the way that they were living their life. And she found that they were people who had these distressing experiences were perhaps better able to integrate the experience into their life as well. So it's not all kind of like doom and gloom. It's they, they did have the distressing kind of experiences as well. It is amazing. It really is. There is so much interest in this topic, and the interest seemingly grows with every passing day because we just, we don't know. You know, we just don't know. And you made it very clear from the very beginning in your book that you are not trying to prove or disprove afterlife, that you want, you went into this to, to get a better understanding of the dying process so that the care of the dying patient could be enhanced. And I believe you've succeeded. However, did you yourself walk away or find proof or come to the conclusion that, again, this would be for you, that there is an afterlife? Um, I don't think an afterlife in the physical sense that we go on in the kind of bodies that we are now, but I think that mm -hmm. if we think about consciousness and what consciousness is, when does it begin and when does it end, I think if we think... With the research I found, it didn't seem to support that consciousness is produced by the brain. So it seems that consciousness is eternal, and so that it, it could change form at death as well. So I don't think that, you know, we go on and we live as we do now in this life, but the people mm -hmm. who have these experiences say that the real them was not their physical body, it was the, the observing self, which is up 
near the ceiling looking down, for example. So I think we have to really consider our understanding of consciousness because if consciousness is eternal, then if we're conscious beings, then perhaps that aspect of ourselves does go on. I, and that is exactly what I believe, and you put it absolutely beautifully. I really do believe that our consciousness does go on, and it's not. We are spiritual beings having a human experience, and, you know, we're here working our consciousness, driving this mobile home that we have, this, you know, driving it around and just trying to do the best we can to get through and learn whatever it is we need to learn while we're here. I absolutely cannot believe that we are almost out of time. This went by so fast. Penny, it was, it's amazing. You are amazing, and I appreciate you being here. But before we say goodbye, would you please tell our listeners how they can learn more about your work and where they can purchase your book? Yeah, um, you can get my book on Amazon, and um, my, I've got a website, and the website is www.drpennysartori.com, and I've also got a blog as well, and that's um, drpennysartori.wordpress.com. So if you Google Great. me, you could Great. just find it. Yes, absolutely. And I think it is a fascinating book. And the fact that you keep getting more and more information from people's stories, maybe there's another book in the wings that you can just, you know, write with just all the different stories in it. That would be fascinating, I'm sure, and would help yeah. people to understand and see more. So we'll be looking forward to that. Are you thinking about that? <laughs> well, yeah, because I've had so many emails since the book has been published. I've been getting about 200 emails a day. So it's taken a long time for me to respond to them. But these emails are very important to me because I'm gathering even more fascinating cases as well. Oh, we look forward to hearing more about those. It's just this, I just want to have you back on again. We could talk all night. It's crazy good. It's yeah, crazy me too. good. <laughs> <laughs> so, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on Energy Awareness Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in very challenging and constantly changing worlds, and that's why I have the guests I have, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live, productively, helpfully, purposefully. This is where you find the tools to do just that. So send the link to this show that you just heard to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all as well. Thank you so much, Penny, for sharing your time with all of us here tonight. It was more than a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm, I'm enthralled. Thank you so much, and thank you for the work oh, that you thank do. thank you. Thank you for having me. You're quite me. welcome. Yes, indeed. On behalf of everyone here at Energy Awareness Radio, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in this evening. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next Wednesday at 6 p.m. for another great show. For more information about me, please visit my website, quantumwellness.org. You'll find an archive list of past shows, a lineup for upcoming shows, as well as information about other upcoming events I'll be hosting throughout the year, including upcoming Crystal Singing Bowl concerts. So if you're not in the area and you can't make a concert, you can order my CD, Imagine, from the site as well. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at NRG Aware Radio. That's at NRG Aware Radio. I am your host, T-Love, here at Energy Awareness Radio, intending you and yours a most wonderful week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well. Have a great night.